Greetings and welcome on behalf of the Lumen Christie Institute. My name is Michael and I'm Associate Director of the Institute. Um, it's a real pleasure to have all of you here for this fourth installment of our series on reason and beauty in Renaissance Christian thought and culture. Um, we're be excited to be partnering with the American Kuzana Society to organize this whole um, series for you. Um, you can support our work uh, of trying to make the Catholic and broader Christian intellectual tradition a living dialogue partner within the academy and within the broader within our broader culture um, by first sharing information about our events. Um, we rely on people like you um, by spreading uh, information about this through word of mouth or on Twitter, Twitter or on social media, Facebook, um, or just simply um, passing our emails along. Um, you can also become a supporter of our work today um, at www.lumenchristi.org slash donate. You can find that link also in the chat. Um, all of your support um, helps us. Um, now I'm going to hand it over to Robert Porval, who is the moderator for this series to introduce today's speaker. Thank you. Thank you, Michael, and a warm welcome to this in our fourth presentation in the series, Reason and Beauty in Renaissance Christian Thought and Culture. The series highlights ways that rational and aesthetic pursuits interlocked and fed each other in Christian thought and culture in the Renaissance period. And we are very pleased to present this as a collaboration with the American Kuzana Society and our co-sponsors. You can find our previous series, as well as previous presentation in this series, including Dante, Alberti, Pacino and others on YouTube. Upcoming presentations, as Michael alluded to, feature very exciting topics, including next week on Jacques Lefebvre de Tapple, a kind of lesser known Erasmus figure in France, and Renaissance thought and number, theology and reform. After that, Titian's paintings uh, will be featured, as well as follow-up presentations on the legacy of Ficino in, in terms of Cambridge Platonism and uh, foundational Anglican theologian, Richard Hooker. At any time during tonight's presentation, you can ask a question using the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. After the presentation, we will have a moderated Q&A time uh, uh, to finish up the, the session. I want now to, uh, to, uh, to welcome Professor Tamara Albertini. Uh, professor Albertini teaches as professor, as well as chair of the philosophy department at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Her research focuses on Renaissance and Islamic philosophy, as well as their interaction. A recipient of many grants and fellowship, fellowships, she has published articles and books in this area, including on Marsilio Ficino, Charles de Beauvel, and more recently, in the Oxford Handbook of World Philosophy. With this luminous career of teaching and writing, we are very pleased to have Professor Albertini present for us tonight on Madrata Fanta and Women Humanists in the Renaissance. Professor Albertini, I'd like to invite you to turn on your camera and, uh, uh, and unmute yourself. All right, it's done. <laughs> Thank you so much for this beautiful introduction. Um, as the audience knows, we in academia had to really switch gears very quickly and learn how to teach online. And so um, this is nevertheless still a little bit new, especially since I don't see you. So um, I'd like to greet you nevertheless. Uh, thank you for taking the time to tune in. And um, uh, I'll get to hear from some of your feedback and questions at the very end of the lecture. Thank you again for being here. I also like to thank uh, Lumen Christi for uh, hosting this event 
and uh, the American Kusama Society, of which I have been a member for a very long time, for arranging this, um, uh, this lecture. Uh, a pleasure to be here. Let me now switch to my PowerPoint and I'll have to do some screen sharing and we'll be there. Oh, we already, we already are there and let me go to my first slide. So yes, women humanists in the Renaissance and um, that is kind of like the broader topic and then the focus will be on one woman humanist in particular her name was Moderata Fonte. Frankly, she is my favorite among dozens and dozens of spectacular women from the um, Renaissance period. I thought I should give you a, a list of names. As you can imagine, this is not an exhaustive, exhaustive list. There are so many more. I chose the one that um, have uh, more complexity um, basically women who um, did not only write poetry and gave speeches, but where I detected um, philosophical concepts, where I could tell that they thought of themselves as innovators and they, that they wanted to be heard um, down the centuries. So to me, um, this is kind of like my, my very select group. Of course, other scholars might have uh, different names, but these are the ones I have the greatest appreciation for. I place Christine de Pizan within brackets here. She was of Italian origin, you might say, so why not include her? It's not about um, you know, necessarily thinking only about um, geographical locations. Um, so yes, in terms of geography, Christine would fit here, but Christine has a very different background. I won't get into that. Um, why do I have her here on top of my list? Because she triggered a very famous debate and some of the arguments that she proposed have been received by uh, many of the women who followed her and by men as well. So um, strictly speaking, we, you know, the first name here is uh, then Ginevra Nogarola. Um, she was from uh, the city of Verona. Verona was at that time uh, part of the territory of Venice. Um, she is in a black colored font, uh, different from the next person on my list, Isotta Nogarola. They were sisters. Why do I have some names in red? Well, because those are the names I would like to um, elaborate on. So Isotta Nogarola and Cassandra Fedele, they will be my two vignettes. Um, I thought that I should give you a taste for some other uh, women humanists before I focus on Moderata Fonte. Um, so um, in the case of the Nogarolas, we have something of a dynasty. So we have the two sisters, Ginevra and Isotta. There was also an aunt called um, uh, Angela. And we have um, a granddaughter of Ginevra's, Veronica Gambara. Uh, so this is really the case of where you can see that if you educate one generation of women, you are likely to have uh, more generations in that family who uh, will you know, take up the baton and continue doing the kind of learned work of the first woman um, uh, erudite in their ancestry. Um, Laura Ceretta is a wonderful author to read, um, very profound too, with an amazing talent for um, classical Latin. Um, Gaspara Stampa, same thing. Moderata Fonte will be talking about her quite a bit in the second half of my lecture today. 
And then there is Lucrezia Marinella. Uh, she was a con perfect contemporary to Moderata Fonte. Uh, the beauty with Lucrezia is that she knew Moderata Fonte's text and she talks about Fonte. It's, it's only very late in the humanist period that we find women um, quoting, discussing uh, women who have preceded them or contemporary women as it is the case here. For your information, most of the texts written by these ladies and the texts of many more uh, women humanists are available now in an English translation thanks to a series published by the University of Chicago Press. Now, at this point, um, I think it would be important to try at least to understand this very phenomenon of so many highly accomplished women. Why, why in, in this period, why, why do we have a concentration of learned women in the 15th and the 16th centuries? Why not before and why in a way less uh, after the 16th century? There are many explanations that one could try. So I will just give you some, uh, some that uh, make sense to me and that helped me in my own research. I speak here of two overlapping intellectual developments. One is humanism and Renaissance. Um, there is no real agreement as to when it starts and when it ends. Some people might say it never really ended. Um, but you know, you have to have some time frame to work with and within. So generally speaking, I think scholars um, who focus on humanism and Renaissance will say, well, it starts somewhere in the 1300s, which is where Francesco Petrarca was born. He was born in 1304, and it ends in the, in the year 1600. Why 1600? Well, that's the year where famous Renaissance philosopher Giordano Bruno was executed. Uh, he was burned in, uh, in the city of Rome. But of course, this is a very simplistic way to, to go about it, but it helps. It helps just with a general orientation on the timeline. Humanism Yes, you can imagine um, hundreds of volumes have been written about humanism and what it is in the end. I'll focus just on two items. Of course, the rediscovery, the new appreciation for ancient languages. So not just Latin, um, but also Greek and in some cases Hebrew. Um, and what's also very important to keep in mind when thinking of humanism, you know, the historic period of humanism is that it is thanks to the many participants in that movement that the university curricula have been changed. You see, history and literature were not taught at the medieval university. They were considered in a way frivolous. Um, it is humanism that eventually introduced these two subjects, history and literature. Why? Well, because they are relevant to understanding who we are. Humanists reacted strongly to the medieval curriculum um, that, uh, according to them, was not really saying much about what it is to be a human being, what it is that a human being should do and excel at. So broadly described, so that is what comes with humanism and Renaissance. And then there is another scene that plays um, a, a major role, the Querelle des Femmes. You can tell, you know, this is coming from French culture, and that's where we find our Christine de Pizan. So um, she was one of the, probably one of the first women who was able to make a living through writing. Um, now uh, her, her writing, her accomplishments in terms of language and style and her knowledge of um, classical sources 
um, really empowered her to react to what she considered uh, was a horrible case of misogyny. Some of you may have heard of the Romance of the Rose. It starts off, the first 200 um, um, verses are actually about chivalry. It's about knightly love, so very, very beautiful. But um, the person who continued you know, the Romance of the Rose um, someone called Guillaume de Loris ended up turning the whole poem into a satirical um, uh, text that wasn't exactly kind to women. So we have Christine de Pizan taking it upon herself to react to that. And what she does, I'm sure she never dreamed of it, but what she does with that reaction of hers is trigger a pan-European debate. Of, I would say from Spain to England to Poland, Everybody who mattered or thought that they mattered ended up joining that conversation or rather a debate. And it was joined by women and men and men were sometimes um, in the same camp like the women and sometimes they were rather misogynistic. But the fact is that we have this incredible querelle and in my reading, it inspired women uh, who came later and it gave them arguments to work with. This, I think, is Christine de Pizan's greatest gift to the Querelle des Femmes. What she did is use an ancient rhetorical device. You see, the ancients were really good at being very, very practical. We always think of the philosophers um, of the ancient Greek and Roman period as um, being all into theory and contemplation, but they were also very skilled when it came to uh, offering practical devices. So among the many, many devices, there was this one that said, whenever you um, approach a subject that you're going to speak about or write about, you should consider these four aspects, matter, order, name, and place. And what it was, is, was a, a help to make sure that you don't forget something. Let's say, you know, you really are um, focusing on something and you want to make sure you are as fair to your subject as you can be. So what how do you make sure you don't miss things? So this was one of the devices that they had. Christine de Pizan um, obviously knew about this device. And so she applied it to the story of Adam and Eve as um, recounted in the book of Genesis. And so she looks at Adam and Eve and you know the story, I don't need to get into that about the guilt and the fall. And what she suggests is that you have to look very carefully at this four different aspects. Look at matter is her suggestion. And you will find out that um, it is very relevant. It tells us something about the position of Adam and the position of Eve. Adam was made of earth. Eve was made out of Adam, a matter that had already soul that was already animated. And so she says, well, Eve then is worthier than Adam. And then she says, well, you have also to look at the order in which they were created. Adam is often presented as the crown of creation because he was fashioned by God after everything else. But Christine says, well, you have to look carefully because you know, if we follow the Bible, Eve being created out of Adam came after Adam. So she is the crown of creation. We have to look at the meaning of their names. Adam relates to earth and soil. And Eve's name has to do with the word life in Hebrew. 
So again, Eve looks somewhat better than Adam. And Christine de Pizan is not challenging scripture. She's not challenging the theologians. All she does is look at the actual story. And then, of course, there is the last um, facet here, the place. And she's, I think, right again to say that, uh, well, Adam was uh, created uh, on earth, but Eve was created later on when Adam was already taken to the Garden of Eden. So again, if you look at the place, Eve is worthier than Adam. And this is just one small, small detail of the many arguments that Christine developed in defense of women. I'll mention this uh, rhetorical device um, in the second part of my lecture, where um, I'll be introducing Moderata Fonte to you. Now, a few words about, um, you know, this many women who excelled in the letters in the um, humanistic period, um, what made it possible? Um, here are some of the reasons that come to mind. I think what really helped um, the education of women and frankly, the rise of many female child prodigies is the rivalry between the Italian city-states. You see, Italy was not unified. Italy was only going to get unified in the 19th century. So for a long time before that, you had various different principalities and little republics, and they were always in competition with each other, economically, of course, and then with um, the rise of a good economy came also the chance for patronage of arts and sciences and, uh, and better educational um, institutions. Um, with more prosperity came also a chance for many women, typically high ranking women, to become uh, patronesses. Uh, and um, they supported uh, men and women, but sometimes you could tell they really wanted to support women. They had um, an eye on women with talents. Um, what also uh, probably helped is that in Italy, well, in most regions of Italy, um, women were not excluded from inheritance like in some other parts of Europe. They may not have uh, inherited equally like their brothers, but typically they always inherited something. And of course that gave them some independence. Um, with the rise of a merchant class. So we're not just talking here about aristocratic families, right? We're talking here about a new social class um, that thrived on banking and trade, and trade. Um, you know, just enough to think about the Medici family, right? They, they did not come from aristocracy. So with this rising merchant class came also um, a, new, um, a new habit, if you will, which was to hire private tutors for, one ch for one's children. And oftentimes we find in the biographies of uh, women who became humanists that they attended the classes that were actually intended for their brothers. And sometimes they excelled while their brothers just felt that it was all boring. So there is that. And of course, the fact that um, I should go back here if I can, the fact that um, humanist circles, generally speaking, took interest in talent and um, they mostly um, did not discriminate against um, girls, teenagers, young women who also showed promise. So I think all of that um, helps us understand uh, the rise of um, uh, women in the humanist period. I come now to my first vignette. So this is the very, very famous Isotta Nogarola. Um, 
in this image here, it's a double, you'll see, uh, it's a double portrait. So you find her on the left here and the other person, Angela, was her aunt on her father's side. So they both excelled in the, um, in the letters. And then there is a portrait that just shows Isotta. And then there is one down here where you see Isotta surrounded by books. This is really a scholar's dream, right? And um, uh, it's uh, something that was published in a, um, a, a sort of historic dictionary, if you will, that um, uh, collected the lives of women who excelled in the arts. Um, some of her work was um, early on collected and published together with her sister Ginevra, you see here Ginevra in the Latin. Um, we have um, a collection of her letters, very important if you are a humanist. Um, this is actually um, your, um, your, uh, your way to enter the learned circles of your time. You write a letter and you hope for a response. And if the person responds and the person is very famous and very established, well, that becomes very helpful to you. So the more of those responses you get, the likelier it is that you will succeed and become also a member of the humanist circles. So we have that um, collection of letters. We have um, uh, speeches that um, um, Isotta Garola gave publicly, and we have a dialogue. I will talk very briefly about this dialogue um, called in translation on the equal or unequal sin of Eve and Adam. It's a dialogue that she, uh, that she wrote in 1451. So you see, um, she too, like Christina Pizan, um, is interested in the story of the fall of um, Adam and Eve. Why? Well, because the way how you interpret that biblical story sets the tone for how men and women are viewed. And oftentimes, as you probably know, women uh, were disadvantaged in the way how that story was interpreted. So she takes it upon herself and writes on the subject. And before we get to, the, to some of the items that she um, discusses in her dialogue, I just wanted you to realize that she is considered the first woman humanist. We want to be careful with first and last, but you know, she was definitely among the first women who excelled in the arts. We know that she received early on uh, classical training through, um, thanks to her mother who insisted that all her children, uh, sons and daughters be educated. But she had in addition, uh, thanks to her um, connections in the humanist scene of her time, a chance to spend more time reading. Um, so not just the, the, the Romans, you know, like Cicero and Livy, but also Aristotle, Boethius, Aquinas, Averroes, and Avicenna. We don't know of many women in, during humanism and the Renaissance who had access to these sources. Aristotle was an obvious because the University of Padua was very strongly focused on Aristotle, uh, unlike Florence that was you know, emphasizing Plato. Uh, Boethius is definitely part of the mix if you're interested in a classical education. Thomas Aquinas, champion right of theology, uh, definitely included here. But then you also have two Muslim uh, authors. Averroes is the Latinized form for Ibn Rushd. He was an Andalusian. Arab philosopher played an, an enormous role in Europe during the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and was extremely important for the University of Padua. Avicenna was a Persian, uh, his uh, name in Arabic is uh, Ibn Sina. Um, uh, so um, 
she had access to more sources than most of the women during the humanist period, I should say. Interesting about her is also that she never married. She refused to marry. Her sister Ginevra married and stopped writing. Zotta had anxieties that that could happen to her too. And she also did not become a nun, which was the only other option you had um, if you were a woman in that period of time. But she discovered a third way. And the third way was to uh, basically cloister yourself in your own home. So she spent 25 years in a small room that uh, some of her visitors called a book-lined cell. And that was you know, in her mother's home and later on her brother's home and then in the home of a uh, humanist called Ludovico Foscarini. His name is right here, uh, um, you know, uh, just two lines below. With Foscarini, she had a uh, very profound um, uh, humanist um, friendship. Um, they both debated publicly on the story of the fall. Uh, and I'll just mention uh, in a moment a few of her arguments. And then there is, just to give you one example of the kind of compliment you could receive in the 15th century if you were an accomplished woman, a fellow humanist called Laura Quirini wrote to her, you have overcome your own nature. Basically it meant you have become a man. That was a compliment. Now, in the dialogue, um, what Isotta does is turn tables. So like Christina, she is not um, you know, challenging uh, scripture. She is just looking at the same story through a different lens. And this is what she has to say about the fall. She says, well, if Eve is less intellectual, you know, women just had to be less intellectual. And if she's also less constant because she was a woman, well, then her sin is also less, right? How could she excel at sin, you know, but be weak in everything else? Then if Adam had not eaten the apple, well, Eve's sin would have had no consequences. Hmm. So if only Eve had eaten the apple, humankind would have been just fine. And then she says, anyway, God has commanded Adam not to eat. So she looks very carefully at the wording in the Bible and the you in other uh, European languages is such that you know whether it is one person or more than one person. She can, she can clearly indicate, no, no, God was talking to just one person. He was only talking to Adam. So if he never told Eve that she shouldn't eat the apple, well, and Eve never disobeyed. And she says, well, yes, but Eve is sinful too. Um, but her sin is one of pride because she desired knowledge. It is a lesser sin than Adam's disobedience. Hmm. And then she ends up saying something like, well, in that case, it is Adam who spread the sin to all humankind. It is not Eve. Of course, I'm giving you um, Isata uh, Nogarola's arguments here to know what Foscarini uh, said. Well, you'll have to take a look at the text. It is available in an English translation. I come to my second vignette, Cassandra Fidele. Um, I found three uh, little portraits of hers uh, from different ages. So there is Cassandra, very young here, uh, when she was at the peak of her um, reputation, when um, you know, she was much admired and all the time invited. And then there is one here that shows her when she was about 35. And the third portrait shows her quite, quite later um, in, you know, in her life. 
Um, I say here that, uh, that she had made a comeback after years of widowhood and bitter poverty. Um, she actually said when she was young that she would never marry because if she married, that would be the end of her writing. But then she did end up marrying and um, it turned out indeed she stopped writing. It's much, much later in life when she returned to her native city of Venice that uh, she was again recognized for her skills and, um, and honored by, by the Doge himself. Um, unfortunately, um, her more interesting work like the Ordo Scientiarum, uh, the Order of Sciences has been lost. So we'll, we'll, we, you know, we won't know what it is, what ideas she, she had, uh, but there's always hope somebody might find the manuscript. Her Latin poems um, seem to have been lost as well. What we do have are her letters and speeches. They were collected and um, published uh, long after her death um, in 1636, but they are available and you can also read them in an English translation. So some points of interest about Cassandra Fidele. Um, she understood how to play the game. I mentioned earlier, it was important to write to a famous person and then receive a response and, and collect more famous people and so forth. But in the case of um, Cassandra Fedele, you can tell she was really after the high ranking ladies of her time. So she writes to Queen Isabella of Spain. This is you know, a ruling queen, if you know the history of Spain in that period. And she, um, she uh, flatters her, she praises her, uh, as a warrior queen, as someone who has defeated uh, the Muslims during the Reconquista. And Queen Isabella wants her uh, at her court. Unfortunately, the Doge in Venice really felt that Fidele was an ornament uh, to the city and that she cannot, she should not leave. She also writes to the uh, Queen of Hungary, that was Beatrice of Aragon, and many more high-ranking ladies. And of course, she doesn't miss a chance to get in touch with uh, the big names in her period. So Bartolomeo of Scala, he was a very important humanist in those days and the chancellor of Florence, Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, uh, famous philosopher at that time. Uh, I don't think I'll have a chance to get to talk about him and connect him with Moderata Fonte, uh, but here is at least his name, Poliziano, philologist, philosopher, poet, Giorgio Valla and so forth. So again, you write, you receive a response, and the more responses you have, the more assured you may be that you have become part of a humanist circus. Uh, she goes beyond that. Cassandra Fidele wanted to study at the University of Padua. Uh, as a woman, she was not allowed to do that, but she could debate publicly, and she took advantage of that. So we know that she debated on theological and philosophical questions at the university. We know of her public lectures. The last one she gave at the age of 91 <laughs> in honor of the visiting queen of, uh, of Poland. Just a few details about her writing. Um, she of course covers humanist topics, Fortuna, right? Uh, amicitia, uh, friendship and so forth. Uh, her position vis-a-vis -vis Fortuna is that one is fortunate. You have the word Fortuna there, one is fortunate through reasoning. Reasoning is the best way to um, avoid the many pitfalls of Fortuna. When she writes, of course, she, she follows the purpose of modesty. Male writers in the humanist period did that too. 
as a woman, she probably felt she had to go further than her male colleagues. And so she uses many diminutives. She is a servula, a small servant. She is a virguncula. She is um, a small maiden. She sometimes invents new words. So virguncula is uh, neologism. Um, she also you, you know, creates the term homuncula, uh, a little woman, a little female human being who is a little bit audacious or bold. So you don't really have this diminutive with um, the adjective audax. So she creates that. She is a little newcomer. She is a tiaguncula. <laughs> her voice is a little voice. Her talent is just a matter of a little bit ingeniolum. So ingenium is the actual term. And it's a very important term in the humanist and Renaissance uh, tradition. And of course, her letters are little letters. However, we can tell from many passages uh, precisely in the letters that that was just the topless. Uh, she was merely pretending to be modest because in a passage of a small letter written to Louis XII, King of France, she says at some point, I, however, the true bard and prophet of Italy, not exactly modest. But it's time to come to Moderata Fontaine. Oh, but um, you look at the name here on this slide. And uh, it says Modesta Hotzels. So who is that? It is the same person. So we are dealing here with um, a woman humanist who decided to change her name. We don't often see that. A famous example is uh, Leon Battista Alberti. He was born Battista Alberti. So he gave himself an additional first name, Leon, Lion, right? Um, what's this woman humanist did is um, look for semantic connections in such a way that she could embellish her name. See, modesta means modest, English, and pozzo means well. Well, it looks like she may not have liked that name so much because she cho chose rather to be called moderata fonte. You see, mo you say modest and moderata are related um, etymologically, semantically, but with moderata, you get a connection to one of the platonic virtues, moderation. And with fonte, you get spring, you know, living waters, not like the stagnant waters in a well. So that in itself, I think, is quite a statement. Um, a little bit about her accomplishments. You know, I did uh, say to you in the beginning of the lecture that there were so many uh, female child prodigies in her case, it's uh, really extreme. Uh, apparently, she had an exceptional memory. Uh, she would hear a sermon once in church, and she could just repeat it word by word. Um, unthinkable today, but uh, with a kind of humanist training that was available at the time of Moderata Fonte, and with some, you know, good natural predisposition, it could be done. Um, she is the case of someone who learned Latin because her brother had a tutor. <laughs> So she, she was sitting in the back, most likely, uh, but uh, definitely took advantage of those lessons. She was very talented when it came to drawing. Everybody was commenting how she would draw lifelike. She played the musical instruments, the lute and the harpsichord. She composed her own songs. She was a poet. She was a feminist avant la lettre. Here was an entirely different debate um, that we could have um, maybe on another time at another time, which is, um, you know, could you have feminism because before the rise of historic feminism? And I think 
my position is, uh, I think you could. And it's all about understanding the humanist uh, program that women had, which is that you couldn't fully accomplish yourself if you were to exclude women. And so we will find out that in her, uh, in her work, she developed a model of self-cultivation for women. And we'll go to look at that. Um, here is uh, a major book that she published, um, Il Floridoro. It's about chivalric romance. And the champion in this book is, um, is a woman who, uh, you know, fights and wears an armor and, um, and basically does all the things that usually knights do. Uh, you can see here how voluminous that book was. 389 printed pages in the translated edition of this text. The one book that we will be focusing on is Il Merito delle Donne, The Merit of Women. There is um, a subtitle. We'll talk about this subtitle at the end of the lecture. Much is in this title. Um, this too was um, a rather long text 263 printed pages in the um, published English translation. So we are seeing now with Moderata Fonte, uh, a woman humanist who um, most likely because she benefited from her predecessors, women predecessors, was able now to write in a much more complex way. So it's not just about writing letters and receiving responses and giving public speeches. This is really uh, ensuring that her ideas survive um, in texts that are long and, and, and well-construed well um, and very complex. But she also had a musical work. This is something that was performed, um, a piece of 300 verses with singing parts. She also had uh, two very long religious poems, one um, focusing on the passion of Christ, the other one on the resurrection of Christ. Um, so you know, a very, very talented and multifaceted um, author. But let us talk now about that dialogue, um, the merit of women. It is a conversation conducted by seven women and they are in a garden that belongs to a house whose owner is a woman, uh, one of the women in the dialogue. Uh, she has inherited the house and the adjacent garden from her aunt, who is the one who designed the whole property. So you, you can tell Fonte is very much interested in um, creating a, a space that's entirely female, not only because of the interlocutors who are all women, but also because the ownership is female, the design is female. So seven women come together in this uh, house, they choose to um, gather in the garden. And you can tell you know, very quickly that numbers matter. Um, so Fonte is uh, dividing uh, the seven discussions into two groups, so two triads, right? One here, another triad on the other side. And then of course, you know, in typical Renaissance fashion, you need to have someone who mediates. So these two groups have opposed views about men, whether they are helpful, whether men are companions or not. 
And the other thing that um, Moderata Fonte paid attention to is make sure that she has women with different experiences in life. And so age is, of course, something important, but also whether they have been married or not. So Leonora is a young widow, Cornelia is a newlywed, Corina is unmarried, Elena is newlywed, Virginia is Adriana's unmarried daughter, Adriana is the oldest woman in the group, Lucrezia uh, was married for a long time. So you have women with, who, have, who bring their experience to the conversation. Now, I really want to stress one more time how important it was for Moderata Fonte that there be no men, because she has Corinna say very early on in the dialogue, after everybody praises the beauty of the garden and so forth, you are forgetting the best bit in your praises of the garden. You haven't mentioned that among its other charms, there is the very important fact that there are no men here. <laughs> and there is many more passages where one of the discussants in the dialogue will say, and this is free of men, free of men, very strong language. Um, now, the seven women, they sit uh, in the garden, there is a fountain, and the fountain is rather elaborate. The fountain is um, hexagonal in shape, and on each side of the fountain, one finds uh, an allegoric figure, a female figure, uh, one stands for chastity, the other one for solitude, the third for liberty, the fourth for naivete, the fifth for falsehood, and the sixth for cruelty. Um, each of these um, figures uh, holds a symbol and, and um, a motto. And so, you know, chastity, of course, holds the ermine, white fur, color, purity. And then the motto says, let this body rather perish and suffer any stain. Uh, solitude holds the phoenix. And the motto says, alone I live for all time. I die and am reborn. Liberty. It's so impressive that there would be this uh, one figure representing liberty, represented by the sun. And then the motto that says, alone and unique, I illuminate myself and all around. The theme of solitude is strong, not just here in the models, in the dialogue as well. And I should go back to go back to my previous slide. Um, knife team, a burning butterfly. Obvious, right? We get the message: the butterfly that approaches the light and burns. Falsehood. Um, the peach tree leaf is um, tongue-shaped, and so that's something that Murata Fonte uses here. The motto says, all too different is the message of the heart from that of the tongue, right? The tongue says one thing, the heart has a different message. And then there is cruelty, and that's the crocodile. And, and you know, crocodile, according to ancient sources, first kills his, its victims, and then when they're dead, mourns them. So very, very um, intriguing figures, intriguing um, messages here. Each of the figure also has a letter on the forehead, and I won't get into that. I, I don't want to be guilty of more people who will spend their lives trying to figure out the mystery of those letters. So just, just the, you know, the symbol on the motto. So when you, whenever you combine that, the symbol on the motto, you get an emblem. And the dialogue uh, towards the end revisits emblems and clearly addresses them as language. Um, there is no way to find a term that covers all, all of these six um, you could think of chastity, solitude, and liberty as definitely positive ideals. The models support that. 
naivete, falsehood, and cruelty as something to keep in mind. These seem to be other warnings, uh, things that women should uh, be aware of when being in the company of man, when living with man. Uh, so there is much that I could say about the six cultures, but you know, there is more that I need to add here um, to give you um, a, a flavor of all the things that um, um, Madara Fonte covers and how she relates to her female predecessors in the humanist tradition. So, but keep this in mind. Now, the fact is that um, the women have to be in a central place. That's where the, the fountain is. And you have this language that, um, you know, the emblems speak. And that triggers now a conversation that in the dialogue um, will last for two days. So the seven discussions will be there together, talking to each other for seven days. I now chose uh, passages from the dialogue that relate to that rhetorical scheme I had mentioned earlier on in the lecture, right? The, um, the matter and the name and uh, the order and um, the place. So um, not surprisingly at all, um, there is a passage where one of the um, participants, her name is Corinna, uh, clearly makes an allusion to three of the um, uh, facets uh, to be covered by the rhetorical scheme. So here she says, men were created before women. Right, so, and that is something she disputes, but this is clearly the uh, ordinary argument, right? Here she says, well, what's so important about it anyway? And um, so then here she makes an allusion. So the author, Morara Fonte, uses Corinna as a mouthpiece and then makes an allusion to the um, importance of, of matter. Um, Lowly seeds are nourished in the earth, and then later the ravishing blooms appear, lovely roses blossom forth, and scented narcissi. So um, the, the message here is uh, men are the earth, and um, everything that grows out of earth and is blossoming is, uh, is female. And then there is um, an indication of the place. Corinna says, as everyone knows, the first man, Adam, was created in the Damascene fields, while God chose to create a woman within the earthly paradise as a tribute to her greater nobility. Yeah? So um, the um, usefulness of that rhetorical scheme first applied by uh, Christine de Pizan uh, was understood by, by Moderata Fonte. It's not taking center stage in her dialogue, but it is there in support of her views. Um, we don't have the name. And I think Moderata Fonte didn't have to make that explicit because the name is what you change, right? She was born Modesta Pozzo and she became Moderata Fonte. So I think there is an implicit invitation here to the women of her time to just be in charge, control their affairs by also changing their name if they would like to. And then as we look, you know, at the rest of the dialogue, it is um, very, very impressive to see how far some of the discussions go in denouncing the injustice and the oppression that they are suffering. Now, mind you, these are high-ranking Venetian ladies. They do have um, some independence. They do have some wealth 
they command some respect in their communities, and yet they do think that women in general are um, being taken advantage of by men. Here, Leonora says, and they, men, they do their job far worse than trees and other irrational creatures, which never fail in their duties. Um, here is all the help they, men, are to us. They don't look after us as they should, but rather set out to injure us and deprive us of all those good things we could be enjoying if it weren't for them. Wealth, freedom, reputation, and the favor and respect of all the creatures of the world. Very strong statement, right? So Leonora understands this is something that has been socially construed. This is not natural. This is uh, the result of uh, social engineering. And if it is the case, well, then it can be changed. Leonora in the dialogue understands that um, there is a way to design society in a very different manner. Then we have Cornelia. I, I think of this passage here as her emotional plea. So here she addresses men and she says, we were born with the same substance and qualities as you. And we were given to you as companions in this life, not as slaves. And you're also quite aware that because of our humble and unselfish nature, and because of the love we bear you, we serve you and follow you and are respectful, obedient, patient, and utterly faithful and devoted to you, accompanying you throughout life and even to the tomb, as beautifully said. And then the passage here ends with a, passage, with, um, uh, a line that um, makes my students always sad when, we, when I read it to them. Here towards the end, Cornelia says, loving fathers. So it's not just, you know, the men who are husbands, companions, also fathers. Loving fathers, what possible cause can there be for you favoring your male over your female offspring? And then this, this really, um, you know, what a dramatic sentence. I shall not mention the actual physical cruelty that has often been shown by fathers to their daughters. And that's all, the, the text does not elaborate. And then there is Cornelia's cri de guerre, call to war. It is absolutely amazing. So Cornelia at some point will say, come on, let's wake up, let's wake up and claim back our freedom. So there comes again, the subject freedom, very strong throughout the dialogue. Let's claim back our freedom. It suggests that women were once free. They lost it. Somebody took it from them. Men took women's freedom. And the honor and dignity they have usurped from us for so long. Very, very strong language. Now, towards the end of my lecture, I would like to, in a way, point out what might be one of the takeaways from this dialogue, because you see, in philosophy, um, if you're a woman and enjoy to, to, to read about women's accomplishments, it is not enough to know that um, they were able to make themselves heard, right? We women in philosophy want um, some more complexities. Uh, we're looking for concepts. We are looking for ways in which a text could still speak to us, even though, you know, we are so much later, we are just 420 years later now, 
than when um, Moderata Fonte's book has been published. It has been published, by the way, by their husband eight years after her death. Uh, she herself did not have uh, complaints about men. She had a, a very good marriage, very good conditions in which she lived. And yet she wrote about women who were less fortunate. Now, um, I didn't give you the full title of the dialogue. I'd like you to compare with me the official English translation of the title. Now you see, there is always a way to uh, be dissatisfied with a translation. So it is not about putting any blame on the translator. Um, a translation is a major interference with any text. Uh, the best translator will, cannot do justice to an original. So I'll just point out the terms that I think might be better served with a different rendering. The official English translation says the worth of women. Well, worth is not far from marriage, right? So this is not too dramatic as a, um, you know, as a, as a, you know, as a rendition. But later on, I do have two terms where I like to insist on following the original title more closely. The English translation says wherein is clearly revealed their nobility and their superiority to men. The um, the Italian translation, if you just you know give a um, a literal rendering, says uh, wherein one clearly discovers how dignified. What you would say, you know, I think better way would be to say how endowed with dignity, and more perfect they, meaning women, are than men. Um, Morara Fonte does not speak of superiority. She says women are more perfect than men. And of course, you can interpret that as being a way in which women are superior. Um, she also doesn't say nobility. She's, she brings in dignity. And the text has many, many passages that speak of dignita or uses the adjective denio in the um, masculine form or denia in the feminine form. So what am I up to? I like to give you some other titles. I was very intrigued to see, you know, in the vast literature that humanism has um, on nobility and dignity to see what authors chose what term. And here is, of course, just a selection among uh, many more titles, but there is um, um, Montemagno's De Vera Nobilitate on true nobility. There is Poggio Bracciolini's De Nobilitate on nobility, Platina, De Vera Nobilitate, Cristoforo Landino, again, um, true nobility. These are um, really very, very distinguished um, authors from the humanist tradition. And then some other authors speak rather of dignity. Manetti speaks of the dignity and the excellence of man. And here comes um, again, very quickly, our Giovanni Pico de Mirandola with his oration on the dignity of man. Truly, the title has been given to that text of his uh, later on, after his death. But I, th I don't think that anyone would say that the addition of dignity or the, the, the you know, having dignity there as a subtitle is in any way uh, doing injustice to the text. Um, there is that wording in the text itself anyway. Now, of course, both Manetti and Pico um, came from humanist training, but they were also philosophers in the sense that they had um, you know, um, additional intellectual ambitions. Um, they weren't only interested in ethics. Ethics is really a great field of humanism, 
Um, the philosophers in that same period also had a metaphysics and epistemology, um, just to mention two more branches of philosophy. It seems to me that the philosophers would rather uh, think of dignity as an ideal, whereas the strict humanists or the ones who re remain within uh, the humanist realm um, choose rather to speak of nobility. Now, again, um, ability, dignity, I mean, these are very close terms. So what might be the difference? Um, I just wanted you to see that we can find that option nobility or dignity also among the women uh, humanists. Lucrezia Marinella in her famous book on the nobility and the excellence, uh, excellences in the plural of man and the flaws and failures of man. Uh, yeah, so she chooses nobility. Murata Fontenau, we know, is, was more interested in dignity. So you find that reflected also among the women in humanist circles. So I thought at this point, one would have to look at the original terms um, in the Latin. Um, noble uh, comes from the nobilis, which is um, derived from nobilis, knowable. So there is knowledge that's entailed there. Excellence means to surpass, excellere. Um, now the terms that Fonte uses in her title are merit and it comes from a verb that means to earn, to deserve, to acquire, to gain. So her title suggests then that um, um, women earned their merits. Merit has, has already in itself something to do with earning, deserving. Perfection is a Latin translation of the Greek entelecheia, a uh, very important term in Aristotelian philosophy, uh, perfection, completeness. Um, for Aristotle, the condition in which a potentiality has become an actuality. So that is the philosophical background here. And then dignity has to do with, um, you know, whatever is worthy, proper and fitting. I was really more interested here uh, among the three terms used by Fonte in her title, indignity. And I would like to do something daring I'll just hint at things. And then in the Q&A session, if you are interested, we could talk with some greater depth um, on this issue. Um, dignity obviously is important to us today. So just a reminder, I'm sure everybody realizes that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights speaks of dignity, right? The first line, first sentence speaks of the inherent dignity. Um, in, um, you know, and that it applies to all members of the human family. Yeah? And then later on, you'll find it again, the dignity and worth of the human person and the equal rights of men and women and how that determines, determines the promotion of social progress and so forth, right? So this, this are, these are um, ideals, concepts uh, that we still cherish, obviously. obviously. We couldn't think living in, in the world we are in without these. Um, Yes, here, one more in the article one, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. This text resonates very differently, Moderata Fontes text, when you uh, juxtapose it with, for instance, the Declaration of Human Rights. Um, you, could look, you could look at Kant and there is something very, very um, uh, you know, fascinating 
um, that happens when you juxtapose Immanuel Kant, major 18th, early 19th century philo German philosopher with uh, Moderato Fontes' text. There is a famous formulation of the categorical imperative where you can tell it's based on, on, on the New Testament. Act only according to that maxim whereby you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law. But the one I'm interested in here is the second formulation because that is really how you have a way to test whether dignity is really more than a word. Act in such a way that you treat humanity, whether in your own person or any other, never merely as a means to an end, but always at the same time as an end. This too, um, you know, is a formulation that when you read it while going through uh, Moderata Fontes text, you'll be surprised. You'll be just stunned to see that there are many passages in Moderata Fontes dialogue that make very much the same case that man did not allow women to live in such a way that they could be there, they could um, focus on their own end, their own purpose. Instead, they become instruments in the lives of men who then enable themselves to reach their ends. So in conclusion, and I'll read this, Moderata Fonte was a voice advocating the inclusion of women in all humanist ideals. While women were not banned, obviously not, humanists actually welcomed their input. Fonte realized that the canon of text was never designed for women. It may have said man, but it's not really clear whether the authors thought of generic man, which would include women, or whether they just thought of males. There was no formulation that addressed them, women, their merits, perfection, and dignity. So I'm using here Moderata Fonte's own terms. I think we can grant Fonte that she had a good instinct about where the culture should move to, and it did move there. And we need to make sure that it stays and moves even further. And I would like to use Moderata Fonte's words in Italian at the very end of my lecture, non taceremo più, we women shall not remain silent anymore. Speech does change the world. Thank you. And then here, just some titles of interest. Um, you'll find Fonte mentioned in many of these um, more general works, whether they have whether they come from religious studies, philosophy, or whether they focus on uh, women in the Renaissance period, and then the works available in English translation by Moderata Fonte, and some mini, mini selection here of literature. There is more in other languages, but I, I really wanted to focus on those available in English. And with this, I come to the end of my lecture. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Albert, uh, Professor Albertini, for, for this very, very uh, engaging and accessible window into this whole large discourse of, of these letter writing uh, circles, of these very learned women about whom many of us have heard, including myself, very little, unfortunately. Um, we have a couple questions uh, from our attendants, but I thought I would, I would toss the first one in. Um, I was wondering, uh, why is it that when we, we think of the Italian Renaissance, you know, we have a couple of names like Lorenzo Valla or Petrarca, 
or, or Erasmus come to mind, but we don't, we don't think of, uh, of folks like Madarata Fanta. And when, when did they start to reemerge? And in, in, uh, uh, when did they start to be rediscovered and how was that rediscovery taking place? That's a very good question. Um, you know, the first part of my answer will surprise you. When I was still a graduate student studying in Munich, um, I went through a um, 18th century French dictionary um, that was dedicated to the man of the Republic of Letters. I was looking for some you know, more information about a Renaissance um, author. Hmm. And merely by chance, I found out that the women were included. You wouldn't think of it, right? It says, la République des, uh, des Lettres, uh, les, les hommes dans la République des Lettres. So men in the Republic of Letters, and yet women were included. And that had me look in a more systematic way at many more dictionaries earlier and later. I think not all the women, but many of these highly accomplished women were not really forgotten. But what happened to them is that it, their text did not become part of the canon. So whenever um, a selection had to be made, and this is something we still face in academia today, uh, the women did not make the cut. And so uh, one could say, well, um, you know, there weren't that many texts. Would you really have someone on your list who's written only one book if instead you could have someone who's written a hundred, right? Um, and while I understand the, the, the impulse to, to decide in such a way, obviously we're not doing justice, not, not, only, not, not only to the women, but to the period. If you want to understand the Renaissance, we really have to make an effort to be to be more inclusive. And then the other problem, of course, was the lack of translations. But nowadays, there is this amazing series uh, from Ch you know, University of Chicago Press that um, has some um, um, major, major um, editions. So that, that can change things. Um, another problem, and this is something I discovered much, much later in my scholarship, is that um, People like me who are interested in women from the humanist period, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes find that um, scholars who are feminists or historians of feminism don't think that, let's say, Moderato Fonte is a feminist. And that only, that is only, to, in, you know, the way I see it, that is only the case if you insist on a correlation between um, a female author and um, the call for equal rights. Um, so there is, there, is, there is a call to remove injustice, any kind of obstacles in the lives of women in Moderata Fonte and many more texts, but there is no call for equality. But you can't really expect that. I mean, who asked for rights in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, right? This is a development that came much, much later. So uh, what I'm advocating for is to say, for as long as you find that someone, meaning a woman in this case, is writing um, on behalf of all women, that to me is a very good criterion to find out whether there is a feminist consciousness. Morada Conte had a beautiful life. She was not writing because she was miserable, but she understood that there are some conditions in her society that prevent women from excelling the way men can excel. And so that to me is, is very revealing. Um, and also, you know, 
you need to have the, a criterion like that in place that says, you know, I'm thinking here about women as a group, because you don't want to credit a feminist consciousness to a powerful woman who did very well for herself. Queens are typically examples of that. That is not a feminist, you know. Uh, Maria Theresa, uh, um, you know, Habsburg Empire, not a feminist. She didn't do anything to, um, you know, um, take care of um, the injustice done again, you know, uh, to women and so forth. She was powerful and was able to enlarge her sphere of influence. So I, what you need to find out is, is this a woman who wants to be, you know, who speaks on behalf of all women? So if feminist scholars help, uh, you know, and, and uh, are prepared to see that these are feminist voices, I think that can change a lot. Instead, they are sometimes called forerunners and predecessors and um, they're feminists. That's the way I see it. No, that's very helpful. Thank you for that very thoughtful, nuanced answer, trying to situate uh, the, these, these folks uh, in, their, in their period and, and also sensitively approaching them. Uh, there's a couple questions about their time uh, and, and their place, but first let me mention, we're, we've officially come to the end of time. Uh, so if people need to depart, uh, 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 please feel free if you need to, and, and you, can, you can catch the rest of this on, on YouTube when it's uploaded, but we don't want to cut short the Q&A just yet. So we'll continue on a little bit longer uh, because there's just too much here to, to sacrifice uh, this, this opportunity. Um, so one of the really, one of the things I really appreciated about this presentation was this, the, the, the really uh, nice way into uh, the, uh, to Matarata's uh, 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 discourse, including the whole uh, debate about women, for and against, so the Coel de Femme. One of our attendees has asked about some of the contrary uh, sources, some of the things running against uh, the women authors. Uh, Lizette asks, uh, Lizette, excuse me, asks, uh, do any of these women humanists address or discredit the Galenic or Arist Aristotelian explanations of female inferiority? Um, I can't think of one who does it explicitly, mm. but if you know Aristotle and then you read texts written by women from the period, you oftentimes can tell, you know, the um, correlation of matter with women and form with men. Um, uh, anything that has to do with um, reproduction whereby women are allegedly just providing the space, right, for uh, the embryo to, to grow. You can always tell that a woman was aware of the science of the day and then gently, you know, moved into a different direction. You can find that already in Hildegard of Bingen. Hildegard um, is centuries earlier, and yet, um, you know, you can tell, for instance, that she follows Galen against Aristotle. She doesn't say, she doesn't say, well, and by the way, you know, I'm not going with Aristotle, I chose a different authority, but you look at her uh, writing and you can just tell what the source is. So women, um, although they, they didn't have um, the same access, Right, to libraries and where, where books, um, whenever they could, were able to select very carefully what worked um, better for, for women. Thank you. 
um, and and for for Christine and, and others, it was Genesis that they they latched onto. It sounds right, right. And you know, that was beautifully done because they weren't um, they weren't changing the wording. They actually apply the same reasoning, right? Like I, I love it when she says, "Well, you know." if being the last creature is so important, well, let's not forget, it was Eve. <laughs> it was not Adam, right? There's nothing you can say. It's, she, she hasn't invented the criterion, right? It, it came from the tradition, except that she said, well, you know, you have to be really um, you know, fair here and look at the actual order in which things, animals and human beings were created. And there's so much ingenuity in just setting up, setting up the battlefield um, and is and if but the one we have another question about the use of scripture and theological sources. Uh, and Matarata uh, is born in the middle of the tumultuous reforming climate of the 16th century. And and looking at looking at scripture, we have a question about her idea of merit, perhaps in regards to some of the other theological debates about merit going on. Uh, Sean asks. Are there any resonances of late medieval theological debates about merit in Moderata Fonte's use of merit in the title of her work? Here I am thinking of how the word merit is critically discussed by Augustinians like Bradwardine or Gregory of Rimini, as well as the emergence of the distinction between condign or congru congruous merit. That's a wonderful question. Um, inspiring because it will have me look more carefully at the text. You see, texts speak according to the questions we have. Mm -hmm. And this wasn't a question I had, so I appreciate receiving this. Um, but um, this much I can say, um, and which is that um, you know, spontaneously, I'll just, I would say, Isota Nogarola would be more interesting to study in, in that respect. Isotta um, explicitly discusses um, Augustine and I think also Chrysostomus. Mm -hmm. And some, some, so she, she really spent quite some time reading um, patristic literature. So for this um, you know, question, um, Isotta's dialogue, right? On the equality and inequality of sin uh, I think that would be the, the place to look for, or to start, to start this, um, this project. Thank you, thank you. Uh, there are several other questions uh, on the circle of, of women and the way they, they, they navigated um, sort of learning in this time. I, I was wondering if you could, uh, just to, to look at a few ideas, I was wondering if you could say something about how women in the garden as as uh, we see with the, um, the dialogue on the merit of women, might reflect some kind of uh, other uh, discourse that's separate from like the learned institutions, like the university, the public institutions of learning. Whereas women might be, are women carving out some kind of other learned or erudite space for themselves in this way? That's, that's very well put. Um, yes, women could not go and study at universities. Um, but they had access to what was taught at universities through the humanist circles. So that's very clear for Isotta and, um, and less clear for Moderata Fonte. But uh, I, you know, one could probably find some, some more um, clues that would relate her to people who actually came from very high education. Um, what I see in some of the women I haven't talked about is that they were keenly aware 
that uh, being being friends, um, a letter friend with humanists was a way to get education because some sometimes they would reveal things to you or they would point out a book for you where you could um, you know find more information. So yes, part of what made um, humanism um, the, um, the you know a tradition where women could excel was yes that it was that much of it was happening um, in the private sphere. And in a way, Moderata Fonte with her dialogue and the garden, right, takes it into a more intimate setting, right, where it is the, the, the private home, uh, it is in a, an exclusively female space designed by a woman, inherited by a woman, um, occupied by seven women, it's free of, of men. And so there's a clear understanding that in order for women to find their voices, they, they need that space where there are no men and the, the language that Fonte has that, uh, that tease them, that chastise them, that try to correct their views. So these seven women come together and they feel free to speak out their minds. Some of them change their views over the two day dialogue. Um, they end up having somewhat revised views. The author does not, uh, by the way, tell us one way or another. It's that's the Renaissance spirit. You, you, you present different views, opposing views on a subject and you leave it up to your reader to decide where they stand on the spectrum, closer to one end or closer to another end. So um, this, by the way, I think has, has hurt um, not only the women of the Renaissance, but generally speaking, the humanists and the philosophers later on when the writing style in philosophy changed, um, I, I mentioned Kant. I mean, you know, when Kant looked at Renaissance texts, he didn't see any any point of view. He didn't see anything of substance. It's kind of like it's just a mix of opinions. But it was meant to be a mix of opinions. So the author was in a way withdrawn. But of course, if you knew your author well and you had access to more texts, you could always tell where the author stood. But, but there was an effort being made for you, the reader, to find your voice. And I think, so Fonte writes this text in which seven women voice their, their views. And then she presents it to um, an audience of readers in, in hopes of them finding also their own voices by, 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 fi by you know, just discovering the many point of views that you could have on a subject. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's very much part of that culture. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, okay. Uh, it looks like we got a little feedback there for me for a second, excuse me. Uh, thank you very much uh, on that. Uh, I, and, and we're coming to the end of, 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 our, of our time. I, I see that Madarata's work, The Worth of Women is, uh, has now been published in 1997 by, uh, uh, Virginia Cox at the University of Chicago Press. Would you recommend this to be the, the first starting place for someone like myself who'd like to like to dive oh, in? Yes. You'll, you'll enjoy it as a wonderful introduction, uh, a lot of good information in the footnotes. It's wonder, wonderful, yes, yes, absolutely. No, that's wonderful. Professor Albertini, thank you so much for this very rich uh, presentation tonight. Uh, as you already pointed out, we, we there's strings moving in a lot of different directions. Back to Hildegard, uh, I was thinking of our presentation before on Julian, who also was enclosed in a way, not within a book-lined cell, but but in, in her own kind of cell. 
and um, and this this whole cultivation of the self, as it were, as a, as a form of beauty in, in through learning is, is very rich and very interesting. So thank you. Thank so you. Much. Appreciate that. Um, indeed, Professor Albertini, thank you again on behalf of the Lumen Christi Institute, the American Guzano Society, and I think the entire audience here for a very engaging and accessible introduction to these figures. Um, and we want to invite all of you to tune in again next week um, for our, uh, as our series continues, um, looking at measure and mathematics in Renaissance philosophy. Um, you can also support our work um, to continue putting on lectures like these at www.lumenchristi.org slash donate. Otherwise, thank you again and have a wonderful evening. Thank you, Professor. My pleasure. Thank you, Robert.